are in the Grotto Pod. I am in the Grotto Pod. We are all here in the Grotto Pod. Next to me in the Grotto Pod is, of course, Bridget Quinn. Hello. I am Larry Rosen. Uh, today's episode uh, is going to be a good one. We're going to be joined today by Grotto original gangster, oh, yeah. Laura Frazier. You know how it's, you know it's going to be a good one? Because hmm. it's Laura. When your guest shows up wearing a very colorful frock, then Always. you know... You're in for some good but, times. And Laura just, she just always brings it. She does. A little background on Laura. So she is one of the original Grotto. I don't know. If we're going to get to the I, bottom yeah, whether she's a founder or very close to being a founder. I think she's very close to founder. Uh, I know she is an endless font of stories about when the Grotto was way more fun than it is now. Like crazy people dressing up in fish costumes. Yeah. I feel like there are some, I can't remember any offhand, but we, there are some crazy stories. We may have to, We and, and I'm going to warn you a little bit beforehand, audience uh, listeners, we may have to invoke the Joe Loya rule and put a cap on <laughs> some of the subject matter of the stories. Um, Laura is also a very accomplished author. Check out her Wikipedia page. It's huge. Oh, yeah. You told me to look at that. Did you I look forgot. at it? No. It's like as big as a movie star. But you know why? Because she's done everything. She's done everything. And what I thought was was amazing, and it's it's I don't know if it was on her Wikipedia page or her bio on her website, but you brought it up because she's never had... A non-writing job, like a full-time job. I think she's never had a desk job of any kind, unless you would include being an editor. Is that considered a desk job? But not for like a mm. newspaper. I think she's been freelance. I think she's like run her own bur- business. Right. Burzness, I was Burzness. Well, she's run one of those as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And she and she's an incredibly well-rounded writer, which we were discussing uh, off mic beforehand. She's done uh, hardcore journalism. She's been a columnist, uh, essayist, memoirist, travel writer, teacher, uh, you name it. Publisher. Publisher, a publisher, a she books imprint. That's yep. her own imprint. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Uh, some of her books uh, have been the Risotto Guru. That's the most recent one. Uh, All over the map, an Italian affair, which was a, a New York Times bestseller. In so 2001. good. Love having a bestselling author here on the Grotto Pod. Yeah, and you know what was great about that? It's like winning an Oscar. It's always there. Uh huh. You always have that. It I can know. go like on your tombstone. Your life's so bestselling good. author. Oh, dreaming. Uh, losing it. Uh, here's what I, it's interesting to me, too. Her first published story was in the Jerusalem Post. Oh, that's She so volunteered on a kibbutz. And that, my oh. friend, is good for the Jews. Oh, good. <clears throat> she's been like a crazy muckraker, and she's been around here in San Francisco forever. She's from Denver originally, which I would like to... Yeah, she's a Colorado girl. ...hear a little bit that. about the mm-hmm. growing up in Denver part of it, kind of a Dean Moriarty type of twist. Yeah, I think she uh, she grew up with kind of a, uh, an outdoor life family. Yeah. Yeah. Seems like. Outdoorsy. Uh, also, uh, very uh, notably here in the grotto, owns some property in Mexico. Very yeah, happy with she's that. she's a dancer. Is a, is a uh, salsa dancer. Yes. Salsarific. I described oh, her salsa-rific. in a recent email. Uh, and another thing that I want to talk about. So her uncle, I believe by marriage, was is William Zinser. Yeah. When I think of William Zinser, I think of red book cover on writing well. It's the book. It's the book. They hand you it in college if you're Maybe an English major. Drunk and white, and there's on writing well. Yeah, drunk and white is a little more buttoned down. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and a little more rulesy. Uh, but on writing well, yeah. I mean, everyone, I, I would venture a guess that 80% of the people in the grotto have or have had a copy of that. I would say that is a very That's accurate a conservative yes, estimate. Yes, conservative, conservative. Anyways, uh, Zinser was her uncle, uh, perhaps her, by marriage. Her mentor. And her mentor. That's yeah. where I was circular. Wouldn't that be scary? I'd be scared to have someone like that as my mentor. It depends. If he's Uncle Bill. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I want to yeah. find out if maybe he had something to do with her choice of profession. Right. Even. 
Um, but I, I'm interested in the idea of mentors. I, I, you know, have you ever had one? Because I've never had one. Oh, yeah. In fact, I've had two mentors who have meant everything to me, and they were both named Carol. Isn't that strange? It's confusing. I know. And Carol E. So when I lived in New York, uh, I somehow came under the wing of Carol M. Schwiller, who was a fantastic short story writer, friend of Grace Paley's. Mm. And I was part of her writing group for years and years. Um, absolutely fantastic woman. And for the last uh, like 20 years, Carol Edgarian has been my mentor at Narrative Magazine. That sounds fantastic. Yep. It's been great. I highly recommend it. <sighs> it's a little late for me. But, so <laughs> No, it's never too late. The other side of that, too, is though, I want to talk about, you know, having had that experience with a mentor like that, has she paid it forward? That's a great question. Is she interested in, you know, has she been question. interested in mentoring people? Because it's scary, right? It's like getting entangled with somebody. It's, mm-hmm. and people at a time in their life when they're really needy. Right, right. But it, well, I don't want to get too far into it because I want yeah. to talk to her about it because she had this really, you know, uh, imprinting experience. Yeah. Um, so maybe, you know, maybe we should go get her. Is she okay. done with her? She's over there eating lunch, but she's eating in her office. She was very disappointed. You know, here at the Grotto, one of the big uh, lures when you think about joining <laughs> yeah. the Grotto is you're going to eat lunch with all these writers all the time. Yet sometimes on days like today, apparently. There's plenty of people here. They're just not having lunch. Sometimes you go in there and it's just crickets and you. Sit in the sometimes dark. sometimes you go in and you can't find a place to sit. So, it, But it's right. so random. Right. But I, summer is like this. I, I got to confess to something. The first year that I was here, there was like three or four times and I was like, lunch. And I go in there. No one's there. Me too. Back to the desk. I did the same exact Not thing. Not sitting there alone. I no. did the exact same thing. Now I, I'd sit there alone. Not just that, but I would walk by and see if anybody was there. Lights out. Yeah. yeah. And then I'd be like, okay. And I would no. just go eat my, just my office. By myself. Yeah. All okay, right. I'm going to go get her. Okay. Let's go get her and talk to Laura Frazier, original gangster. Yeah, or gangsta. Uh, Laura, welcome. Before uh, I ask you any questions, do you have any questions for us? <laughs> <laughs> uh, she already had a question for us, Larry. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I'm, I got to say... As I'm listening on a one speaker, I'm not sure the answer to that question. I you better go- tell him what it is. Uh, no, I. you know me. I'm PG-13. I just wanted to know if I could use the F word during the interview because sometimes it comes you know, out. Sometimes it comes out. I know. It salty. just comes out, right? That's <laughs> well, it's such a satisfying word. You can use it as a noun, a verb, uh, an, you adjective, know, an, an adjective, adverb. an adverb. Uh, or if you're Joe Loya, instead of breathing, you can use it. <laughs> <laughs> I actually never use it. So it's very you easy for me to avoid. It? Have you ever heard me use uh, it? No. My mother, who's lovely and has liked my book, but did mention to one of my siblings there are so many bad words. I just Lots don't understand why. And I said, because it's funny, I think. Well, maybe I'll try to be good. You if know, one pops out, it you know, I'll apologize you should in think advance. Of it as good. I, though I don't use them, I don't think of them as being any sort of moral spectrum. Except a couple of weeks ago, I got bleeped because I used the C word. Yeah. No, I never use that word. I was uh-huh. I, I was quoting somebody. I'll tell you what. Before we get into it, I used to be a high school teacher, and I thought the dirtiest <laughs> phrase you could use after teaching high school was "shut up." That was the ugliest phrase I had ever heard. Kids saying "shut up" to each other. Mm. Wait, where did you teach? A Catholic school. Oh my! Those kids have filthy mouths. They do, but I had heard right. all. I'm saying oh, of oh. all the bad things, that was almost like, oh, that just sounds. Ugly oh, oh, it's mean. Oh, I see what you're mean. saying. It is mean. I won't say "shut up." It's mean. Yeah, it's very mean. It is. We don't. We just want Laura, Laura you can to talk speak and talk. However you'd like. So we don't cute. want to put any limits on you, other than the size of this room, <laughs> which is quite limiting. But you know what? So <clears throat> before 
you got in here, we were talking about what we wanted to talk to about you, and we were both on the same page and thinking that first and foremost, we want to hear your story. Okay. Life story. Your life story. So that's going to be really boring. And as I tell people when I when I teach memoir, you just you don't start at the yeah. So give us the the give us the memoir version. (laughs) No, it's actually we're born. Okay, then let's start where we all should start. Whenever we start conversations with each other, when did you decide you want to be a writer? What Um, was the genesis of that? I don't ever remember not wanting to be a writer. I. My mom had a friend who was a freelance writer, and she had this cool office in her house, and all she had to do was stay home all day and make up stories. So I was maybe five, and I was like, that is it for me. That's what I'm going to do. So smart. So you had the the urge to do it. When did you find you had the aptitude? Is you know, I always wonder if writers have that story in their youth like athletes do, where all of a sudden they realize they were better at it than anyone else. This is not going to sound modest, but I grew up having everyone tell me I was better at it than than other people. Well, it's not bragging if it's true. Hooray! Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean it was just I was just always a writer from an early age. In the right direction. Yeah, I was, you know, on the junior high newspaper, the high school newspaper. I was writing for my town newspaper when I was still in high school. And what town wow. was that? Littleton, Littleton Colorado. Colorado. And then I was the editor of the Wesleyan Argus. Mm-hmm. My God, you really have been doing it from the very beginning. Little Brenda Starr. Look at you. Which is also interesting because I also feel like, and this may just be speaking for myself, that being a writer is something I was hoping to avoid. <laughs> <laughs> you know? It was like, yeah, I'm I, good at this and it's really fun. I really like it. But boy, wouldn't it be better to be a lawyer or something? I'm, I'm, I'm looking back and forth like it's a ping pong or tennis, let's say tennis match. Yeah, I I think I went through a brief period of thinking, gosh, maybe I should do something else, but that didn't last very long. For the most part, you went after it, and correct me if I'm wrong, you've never had a civilian job. That is true. I'm kind of proud of the fact at this point that I've never had a full-time job. I've supported myself since college as a freelance writer. That's amazing, particularly considering the world has changed. The world has changed, yeah. And, you know, it hasn't always been easy. And there was a period where it was actually not intentional. I actually applied for some jobs. And I don't know whether it's what I wore, what I, the F-bombs. I don't know what it was. But somehow nobody ever hired me. Um, but aren't you kind of glad... Yeah, I mean, I'm a very independent yeah. type. For, for the record, Laura's wearing a very Jackson Pollock-esque frock today. <laughs> I think it's more poochy than I th- Pollock. I thought poochy also. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. I don't want to reveal my limitations in the world of art. That's okay. Or fashion. <laughs> or fashion. Well, they're equal. Um, Wait, no. <laughs> so... You came out of college, and, and you, you know, early in your career and still now, I mean, you've done serious muckraking journalism, but you didn't want to write for a newspaper when you came out? Like a full-time job, like stop the presses type of deal? Again, I, I did try to get hired. For- mm-hmm. oh, okay. <laughs> Back then. But to be honest, I didn't do the, you know, write for the little tiny newspaper right. out. Um, I, I think that I early on got directed more towards – 
magazines and to the alternative press. The alternative press. So, you know, I mean, it was one of those things that all through college you, you, you believe that, you know, journalism will help raise people's consciousnesses and change the world. Um, and so, you know, I, I kind of took the alternative slash freelance approach. How does that work economically? So I had I had some, you know, odd jobs. Um, I also have never waitressed more than a week, but that was also maybe because I wasn't a good waitress. It was an attitude thing. Um, I, when I first came out to San Francisco, I worked half-time editing a media review called Mediafile, um, and I... Um, I, I did some other just random things to, to make money. But you have to understand, when I moved out to the Bay Area, my what rent was rent? $350 a nice. month. And when was this? I moved out in 1984. Please yeah. don't do the math on that, okay? <laughs> like, I was just, just think maybe I was a child, you know. But you were young. You I, was, I was young, and I had roommates, and you could live on not a lot of money. Um, I wrote for the Alternative Press for a while. You, weekly and The Guardian? First the Guardian, then the Weekly. And then I had an experience that made me realize that I should be writing for bigger venues. And that is, um, I, I wrote a, I was, I was at an, uh, an abortion um, rally, pro-choice, and some antis showed up. Mm-hmm. And one of the antis handed me a card that says, you know, pregnant will help. Uh-oh. So I thought, well, that's kind of a odd thing. Were they, were they religious antis? They were. So I was, I, I had a friend who was pregnant, and I went and got a jar of her pee, and I went to this center to see what they would say to me, and it turned out that indeed it was an anti-abortion um, clinic, and they were to- they told me a whole bunch of lies, like if I had an abortion, I'd never have a baby, and a whole bunch of lies. Um, and then I did a, a lot of research, and I found that the foundation that was supporting these anti-abortion centers was actually um, sponsoring these pregnant girls to go live with these right-wing families and give their babies up to them while telling their parents that they'd like gotten a scholarship to Hawaii or something. Oh, this whoa. was a big story. Wow. It was just a big story. So I wrote it for the Bay Guardian. And I, you know, I was 24 years old or something, and I was like, "Oh, won't you please, please run my piece?" You know. And the editor, um, who who is um, no longer there, and and was was not um, Tim Redmond, who's a, who's a really great editor. Um, the editor said, "Well, we'll. I think we'll hold it till we have a women's issue." Oh. And I was like, "Gosh, you know, I kind of thought it was a good Minor story, leaders. right?" So then the person who I got a lot of this information from, I think, got fed up and gave the story to the Chronicle. And so the the headline, it was the front page news of the Chronicle. So I went into the Bay Guardian. Heretofore, I had been terrified of the editor-in-chief. I walked into his office without knocking, slammed the paper down on his desk, and I said, you've had this fucking story for a month, and you got scooped. And, you know, and just it was just very liberating it's, to be like, 
darn, it's you know? It's a scene in a movie. I was the one. Like, I just needed to have had confidence in my story because yeah. it was a great story. And that yeah. taught me so much. So the next thing is I did is I pitched uh, Glamour Magazine, which, by the way, pays, like, you know, 300 times as much Tons. per word. Oh, yeah. And that sort of set me off writing for the women's magazines. And a lot of times people were like, oh, you're writing for the women, for the magazines that are, you know, having these images of women that are causing right. eating disorders, Cosmetics blah, blah, blah. And, yeah. Right. Which is all true. But um, I always felt like if you could get a different message in the cracks, you're reaching... Three million women. You're also not talking to the, the same people. The choir, yeah. yeah. Was, it, it, and was that the original impetus for you to do that? Because it does seem like a, a leap in faith to go not from I'm going to write for The Guardian to I'm going to write for dailies to going from Guardian to Glamour Magazine. Do you know what I mean? It does seem like that wouldn't be the... Uh, what are you doing over there? What are you, Reading my notes? Okay. I, I thought you were trying to show me something. Like, uh-oh, what am I missing? Um, it does seem... Like, it's not the next logical step. Well, I've always thought that newspaper writing was a little boring. So I think I've, I've always had a bit of a feature bent. Yeah. And so, you know, I thought if I can start writing for national magazines, that that would be great. And and I had some real salad days where I could spend a lot of time on a story and I'd get paid, you know, a good amount. I mean, the crazy thing about about journalism is I was getting paid two dollars a word at twenty five and then at fifty it's like, like 50 well you know will you take a dollar? You know, it's one thing to sit at home and write a personal essay about cleaning your closet and how that made you feel so liberated. But you know, it's another to go out and do serious research and for people to expect to pay you garbage for that is just incredibly insulting, especially HuffPo. I just think HuffPo is the most outrageous organization. They don't pay anything. They're basically the cause of the demise. But somebody's making money there. They cost me me a gig. I was doing, do you remember Patch.com? No. It was AOL's community newspaper sites. And I was at one point writing five columns a week for them in various cities around here about real estate. And then they bought HuffPo and two weeks later, they say we're not paying you anymore. Or HuffPo about them. HuffPo about them. Yeah. And they said two weeks later, it's, yeah. It's I'm just not so like, oh, outrageous. Yeah, and they tried to talk me into continuing. Oh, it's great exposure. Oh, yeah. great I'm personal platform. Exposure for, for, for someone 20 years younger than me. Yeah, but perhaps. for what? I mean, but, I, but do you think these editors, and we're going to just go off topic here. Do you think these editors <laughs> it's all on topic. are all, do you find that they're so young that they don't remember that you're supposed to get paid more? That this is the world they grew up in? I I think that it is just the world they grew up in. It's hard to say. Um, I mean, certainly you still get paid two dollars, two fifty, three dollars a word for bigger magazines, but there are just so few. There are just fewer and fewer of those that are out there. And I've found that the editors of those magazines have become so paranoid because they have so few pages mm-hmm. that it's just this massive like micromanagement of a story. I, I, one, I wrote a piece recently for a national magazine where I, this it used to be like, you know, send Laura out to write about this and I'd just do it. And and now it was, I swear to God, an hour. How does that editor have time to spend an hour going over every thing that he, like, write it yourself, you know? <laughs> yes. It, it, so it's it's a, it's frustrating to sort of stay in the magazine game. Well, we days. see those frustrated emails <laughs> circling around, not just from you. I mean, yeah. like, yeah. around the grotto. People, you know, it's 
it's, it's a t- new world, and it's also one where it's constantly changing. Well, it's a mm-hmm. tough time to be an established writer. I was actually just listening to a podcast today with an actor named Matthew Lillard. Do you know who he is? Mm-mm. He was Shaggy in Sco- the Scooby-Doo movies, Yikes. and he was in Scream, and I love him. But <clears throat> he was talking about how it's so easy to get on something now, but you just don't get paid. There's right. so many more places Same. to appear. Right. But it's so much harder to get paid. And there's so many parallels to writers now, too. There's, you can show up somewhere tomorrow. Yeah. You know, you could get something so out there. So who's making the money? Somebody's making money. That editor, are they making money? Well, I mean, so publish, publishing has basically shifted. I mean, it, you know, magazines were always right. beholden to advertising interests. and. Right. So now it's, you know, companies have become their own publishers in a sense. And so a lot of journalists have had to take gigs, I mean, gone over to the dark side mm-hmm. to just to make a living. And that and me, too. Um, yeah, so, we had the same employer. Yeah. So I, you know, recently discovered that I have a freak ability to be able to write about biotechnology. <laughs> Really? And That's so interesting. I know. Well, see, so the thing is that I know nothing about science, and so by Maybe the time the time yeah. I understand it, I can explain it. Right, and they want. So we had worked for the same company yeah. doing kind of the same thing. Only hers somehow paid a lot more than mine. Huh? But um, but the 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 assignment was basically the same. It was oh good, you'll be able to explain this to a general audience. Yeah, that that actually makes a lot of sense. So that's great. So they paid me three dollars a word. I'm like, okay, I'm in. So that basically pays for me to do right my other work that I'm you know more excited about and so one of the things that you have to do these days as a journalist if you're not writing for you know if you don't have a steady gig is you have to figure out how to have a variety of income sources right like if you're Matthew Lillard you got to appear in Scooby Doo yeah <laughs> so you can afford to make choices where you don't get paid anything right I and you have, made that noise about and you have shiny. to be really careful because you have to basically you're the one who's in charge of your own journalistic ethics mm. so for example i would not write about biotechnology as a journalist because it's what i do to make money mm. right. so i that just you know i i think that you have to be very careful about keeping your journalism clean mm-hmm. um Slightly on that bent, especially talking about advertising, your first book that I know about is Losing It. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I actually remember seeing you on TV when uh-huh. it came out. Were you on the Today Show? She said. I, I was. I was, was on the Today it was Show. Host back then. I saw that. Really? Yeah, oh my god! I was so nervous. Years. That was like my you. first TV experience, this and is, it was the Today Show in the nineties. Uh, yeah, it was, you know, Katie Kirk was so nice. She came out and was like, you're going to be great. And then, so my book was about the diet industry. And, and I, I'm asking this because you write for women's magazines right. and they take it on the diet industry. That does seem a little like they're not going to like it. I, Did they I like wrote it? it. I wrote a lot of pieces about diet doctors great. and the diet industry for Vogue, especially. Great. Um, but yeah, so I got on the Today Show and the first question out of Matthew Lauer's mouth was, so do you binge and purge? <laughs> I'm just like, okay, I spent to a model. three years, right. three years researching everything about the research on obesity, the medical research, the so diet doctor. The first thing is like going question. for... Wait, what, what did you say? Like an estimated 
you know, six million women oh. in the United States, oh, blah, blah, blah. Right. You're, well so You're so smart. You're so smart. Well, Matt. <laughs> but I wasn't as, you know, feisty as I should have been. You didn't it drop was, any F-bombs on live TV. Well, you, you know, it, it's, I think it was just all too polite, Yeah, to be honest. So in a situation like that, though, you're there to sell your book. Mm-hmm. It's not, you're not there as an expert, really. You're just there to sell your book. Kind of. I mean, after three years of researching the diet industry, I, you know, was right, kind of an expert. But but they're not doing a news story on dieting. They're there so you can have the opportunity to tell people about your book. It was Yeah, it was a different take on dieting. I was the first journalist who came out and with the evidence that weight doesn't matter if you exercise. Mm. The sort of fit and fat. And it actually ended up being on the cover of Newsweek. Nice. Um, so, yeah, I was ahead of the curve. And then... I was also, Curve. ah. <laughs> and then I, I was also right before there was a diet pill scandal, which I predicted. Because oh. if you looked at the research, it's like, B, gee, people using fenfen in oh. Europe drop like flies, and yeah. that'll probably happen here too. And it was a whole Yuck. thing where diet, re- you know, diet obesity researchers were being paid by the diet companies and by the pharmaceutical companies to, you know, basically massage their data so it seemed like more people were fat and that it was more dangerous than it sh- than it should than it really was. So which um. What what do you think drives you more? And I'm really stuck. I got to say, it's, it was like 15 minutes ago, but I'm still stuck on this idea that you had strong enough journalistic instincts that someone handed you something at a rally and you thought, oh, I could turn this into a really good story. What do you get more of a charge out of then? Is it the research? Is it the uncovering? Or is it the finished product, the writing? It really changes with every story. I I really like doing research. Um, but the thing that gives me the most sort of thrill is when I'm in it and writing it and, you know, I come, I come up with a phrase that sort of tickles me. Yeah. That's fun, right? Yeah. I'll feel yes. that when the we're writing. So. And, and conversely, if I'm reading something and I come across that phrase, I will Same. cheer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Sometimes I just look up and I'm like, yes. Yes. Line there and better. But I sort of did a shift after my. Which was my follow up question. Yeah. So now you do more travel writing and memoir, more personal stuff. I do more personal stuff. and But now I'm sort of. So, so after my diet industry book came out, it was very well received, but didn't really sell that much. So I just kept going back to. So fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I. I didn't want to keep writing about weight. People would call me and say, right. hey, will you do a story about Kirstie Alley and follow her around as she tries to lose weight? And I'm like, no, I'm done with that. Do I oh, look like entertainment so tonight? I, and and so, so then I, I um, had an experience where my husband left me. I went to Italy. I met a French professor on an island, had an affair with him. And then the, the affair sort of kept going, and I saw him every six months in a different place in a different part of the world. And this was all just happening in my life, mm-hmm. but here we are at the Grotto, which is this community of writers, and my friend Ethan Waters, I was telling him about this, and I had written a piece for Salon, a travel piece about meeting this French professor or whatever. Just the phrase French professor mm-hmm. is so... Right? And uh, Ethan what? was like, that's a book. Yeah, exactly. So a I, movie. Yes. I pitched it, and it should still be a movie. The I rights agree. are available. If Francis Mays gets a movie, you should get a movie. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, plus, I wrote it before Eat, Pray, Love, just saying. Um, <laughs> Stella got a groove back. Yeah. 
anyway, um, so Ethan had that idea. And at first, my agent wasn't very keen on it. And I've found throughout my career that agents can be very negative and you have to just not listen to them. And I'll tell you another story about an agent in a second. But um, but then uh, my agent was in Germany and some German sub-agent went up to her and said, you don't happen to have any women who are writing about like love stories in Italy, do you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, with European men. So she called me in the evening and From said, Germany? Yeah, Didn't and wait. said, can you have a proposal to me by the morning, my time. So I wrote oh. my book proposal in did about... You say, first, I need you to say, Laura Frazier is a genius who has a great idea. <laughs> you were right say and it. I was wrong. Right, right. So, oh so I, my God, I wrote my book proposal in in about three hours and it sold to the Germans and then to, I think, Hungary. And then, so it was a weird situation. Best where it sold ever. Sold to all these foreign countries. And then we came back to the United yeah. States and we're like, hey, this is already sold. So, But so at this point, though, are, have you made a shift then from hard journalism to personal story and memoir? Or well, is so, it just kind of an opportunity? So that was just random. And mm-hmm. in fact, I was so uncomfortable writing about myself. I, I had not done a lot of first person that I wrote the book in the second person. Really? It was like, you do this and you. you do that. And I'm not men, doing anything. Men, men really have a hard time with it. I've got a real problem with second person now. No, I'm not doing that. <laughs> so, and that was the response quite a few people had. Nevertheless, it was a bestseller. I was going to say, please repeat that. You are a New in York the United Times States. I am. Are you going to put that on your tombstone? We were talking about that. <laughs> I mean, cremated or composted. <laughs> um, but so anyway, uh, that book sort of changed things. People were like, oh, I love how you write about food and, mm, and Italy. Italy. And so, so I was like, well, I could ride this Italy food a thing. lifestyle person. You know, and, and that was super fun and I traveled all over the world. But, um, you know, and in the end, I felt like not actually that satisfying. But I was going to ask if, if you found that satisfying because it is easy and fun but it sounds like at your core, you're a pretty hardcore journalist. You know what, though? Writing's always hard. Like, it is. Rosetta Guru, I was reading when I read that and I loved it. I thought this would be hard to write because nothing really happens. <laughs> but it's, you, do, do you know? No, but do you know what I mean? Like, that's a hard narrative yeah, to carry off. And, you know, I thought it was beautifully written and a compelling story. That's hard to do. So it's easy in one way, but Thank hard you. in another, I think. So, so it's, but I have gotten sort of sick of myself. Um, so I've wanted to do more journalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then I don't know. I have an idea. I'm sort of working on a memoir right now as well. So I'm a little confused. I don't quite know what I'm doing. But <clears throat> did you want to get us up to speed on your agent, or is that not something you feel like talking about? Well, you know, we were talking about how hard it is to make a living, um, and I think you know publishers are in the position where they have to have they have to be hitting home runs all the time, mm-hmm. especially the big ones. It's amazing the parallels between the book industry and Hollywood. Yeah, and it's, it's just becoming closer and closer. So, so my agent, who was not the agent who sold an Italian affair, but another one, um, I went to see her in New York recently just to bat some ideas around mm-hmm. and. Um, 
she couldn't have been more negative. I walked out of there just wanting to put a bullet through my brain. She said, you're mid-list and mid-life, and there's not much I can do to help you. Oh, Ouch. And you went right to Facebook and posted that. I did. Yes. <laughs> I, I thought I might as well spread the misery. Spread the joy. And I must say, as a responder to that thread, there was a lot of outrage and a lot of support for you because guess what? There are a lot of people who want to hear what you have to right. say. Well, thank you. But I also felt when I read that, I was like, it's probably not, I mean, not very diplomatic, but probably not the agent's fault. If that's the way it is, then we're all in a world of hurt. You know, she's a really top agent and she's in a situation where she's trying to keep her parking space. And mm-hmm. so she wants to just have bestsellers. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't coming to her with a pitch that was an obvious bestseller. And so she was basically you know, showed me the door. And, you know, I think I've spent quite a bit of time in my career not writing things because people have told me that they wouldn't be successful. And that happened after an Italian affair when my agent at the time basically said, you know, to every idea that she said, it's not going to be as successful as an Italian affair. So, you know, you shouldn't write it. So then I, I'm very fortunate that I am uh, related to... William Zinzer, who wrote on writing well. I, I'm actually related to his, his wife, Caroline. Ah, I told you. Yes, he told um, me that. We, in the intro, we were talking about it, and we actually do want to delve deep into that, but please go on. So anyway, I, Bill used to be a wonderful mentor. He died about two years ago. And I went to New York to his office, which I always thought was sort of like a little writing oasis, um, free of agents and publishers and book sales. And I told him this story about how my agent told me. He asked me what I've been writing, and I basically said nothing because nothing's going to be as successful as my last book. <laughs> <laughs> and he basically said, do you have any idea how stupid that sounds? Oh, great. But understandable. You know, and he's like, you're a writer. You need to just write. And, you know, the fact is that he wrote many books, and not uh, you know, not all of them made a lot of money on writing well, made a ton of money. But... Um, you know, we're not all in it for the bestseller. It's nice if we can make a living, but there's just much more to it than that. So if I have to write my next book and sell it to a small publisher for a small advance, I don't care. It's still my next book. Mm-hmm. I love that. <clears throat> Since you brought up Bill, mm-hmm. I'm really interested in the impact of having uh, – we were talking before you got here about mentors mm-hmm. and how I've never had a mentor. BQ said two, both named Carol. <laughs> and just the impact of having that sort of steady hand behind you and what you learned. And, and at what point in your life did he enter it? Well, I, I feel fortunate that I've, I've really had three mentors. The first was my first agent, Sarah Lazen, who um, I had an internship at Rolling Stone magazine Xeroxing for Coke fiends, and I hated it, and she offered me... <laughs> A job working with her at the the publisher. She was the publisher of Rolling Stone Press, so she offered me a a job with her. So she was a wonderful mentor and eventually became my agent. When I moved to San Francisco, I worked, um, I was lucky to work with Lacey Fosberg, who was a New York Times reporter who then wrote um, several books and and she had small groups. She passed away in 1991. And, you know, my relationship with Bill evolved. At first, I was sort of afraid, first of all, of my fancy New York relatives being from Colorado. Um, mm-hmm. But they ended up being, you know, really nice. Uh, and 
I gradually got to know Bill partly through his work, and I really believe in his manner of writing, which is to be as clear and simple and concise as possible, to cut all the clutter, and to just communicate what you're trying to say as clearly as possible. I probably was redundant right there, even saying that. Um, so that's it's how I like to write. I like to write where every word does work mm-hmm. it, with muscular verbs and um, no, you know, no excess. Now, and with a natural voice, you know, so many people when they right. start writing, it's like I'm going to write now with a capital mm-hmm. W, and they. They, they sound like they're trying to impress you or they sound like they're trying to be smart. I'm smiling because we both taught high school. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you, you yeah. Boy, oh, boy. You know how that goes. You hear that. <laughs> yes. Stop. Stop. I was, I was happy when, um, you know, on Amazon you can see what grade level a book is. So I tested Lower. an Italian affair, like what reading level, and it was sixth <laughs> nice. grade. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah. I don't know about this. Yeah, you can. Yeah. How do you do it? And I mean, I don't know. You have to go look, but but it was. I was kind of happy. Definitely a gold half. I mean, part of the language in an Italian affair is it's called an Italian affair because he spoke French, I spoke English, so our affair was in Italian. Mm. Oh, yeah. And so you have to have sort of a simpler language when you're speaking a second language with Mm -hmm. somebody. Um, And so that came through. I wanted that to come through in the writing so that it sounded like two people speaking a second language in a way. Um, so many years ago, I don't have the date in front of me because I'm an idiot, but when you started SheBooks... That seems strong. <laughs> there, you're right. There are better reasons. There's better examples. But uh, when you started SheBooks, right. did you do so in an effort to sort of pay it forward to mentor other writers? That was part of the idea and also to try to build a platform for women writers who I feel have... And I've felt over my career have been systematically overlooked. I feel both sexism and ageism as a writer a lot when I pitch a story. Um, Maybe it's just, you know, it's not that. Maybe it's just me. But um, I have heard other women complain of the same kinds of things. So She Books um, is a publishing platform that we originally wanted to make short e-books by women, She Books. And it was originally a subscription model where you would sign up and get two new short books, like 10,000 words a week, And um, which meant that as the editorial director, I assigned and edited and produced 78 books over the Man. course of half a year. It's got to take a chunk of time. I just like I, – I, I'm not fully recovered. I think I have PTSD from that. That is incredible. Yeah. But anyway, the subscription model didn't work. It was um, a time when there were several different groups that were trying to sort of say, okay, if they're not paying for long journalism, let's make, make them pay for a short book. Um, Atavist, Byliner, mm-hmm. several people. And, and basically, you know, pretty much everyone, that didn't really work for for most people. It's really, you know, Amazon is the gorilla in the room, and it's very hard to get around. Um but I feel very proud that we published 78 amazing books by women. So you many good books. Get them all on Amazon. Um, <laughs> 78? I had no idea. Yeah, was yeah. Was it 78 separate writers? Yeah. Oh, well, wow. so a couple writers had, had two pieces, but for the most part, 
different writers. Um, and so now we're actually in the midst of, of, ta- of, of negotiating um, an exit for that. So we'll see. I mean, it, it really is too bad because I really enjoyed reading these long pieces. And it is, not, it is a little like the old magazines used to be when you'd wait for the new Rolling Stone to see what the new cool thing is going to be. I don't feel like magazines are like that anymore. Maybe the New Yorker a little bit for me. Yeah. Well, you don't have to wait anymore because you can just go on long reads. Uh, yeah, but it's not the same thing where you know you're gonna, gonna see what it's gonna be. These are more memoir, more yeah, more memoir driven, more women's stories. I mean, I think a lot of it is you know there aren't that many spaces for for these kinds of stories by women, um, and you know a lot of it too is that people have stories from their lives that aren't necessarily 60,000 words. Like Caroline Paul's story. Yeah, think of all the padded memoirs out there. Yeah, Just like if this were 10,000 words, it'd be boom, great. Um, How closely did you work with the writers? I I worked worked with all of them pretty closely. I had editors who were working with me, freelance editors, Mm -hmm. who were editing the individual pieces, but I was the one who basically said yes or no. It was an interesting experience. I had never, I'd always not wanted to be the editor. The boss. You know, I'm, and just because I've always been, wanted to be the writer, you know? And throughout my career, it's been tempting to get a job as an editor Mm -hmm. because you make more money, but then... You're not the writer. Well, they're two separate jobs. They are. And I think it takes people a while to figure that out. Yeah, it does. And so it was interesting. I I had never wanted to be an editor or be in business. I did both. I found out I'm actually okay at both, you know, (laughs) good editor, not not You couldn't have been writing during that time. Nada. And that was just painful. Yeah. I spent like two years not writing and... And working all the time. And working all the time. So it it was not the happiest I've ever been in my life, to be honest. Um, it it was a nice challenge, but... Was a little bit of a relief then when it came to a close? Yeah. Yeah. For a second, I thought you were going to nod, and I was like, she just nodded. No F-bomb came forth. (laughs) It was a super interesting learning experience. Um, I loved working with all those women writers. It was really great for me as a writer to see what interested me and what didn't because people had asked me well, what what do you publish you know how do you, it's like if i read something and i feel compelled to keep reading i'll publish it that's my one and only you know criterion <clears throat> and what about the sense and I, maybe you just covered this but the sense of doing something entrepreneurial like that is that the only time you'll do that or do you think you would ever try something like that again well, I mean, as a, a freelance writer, in you're, an, you are. you're an entrepreneur yeah. every single day. You have to wake up every morning and say, what am I going to do this week to make money? Um, but in terms of having a company and, you know, getting investors and trying to do a startup, I'm I'm not interested in doing that again. That's yeah. pretty far Ooh. from writing. Yeah. yeah. Although it is so much managing your own brand, you know, making sure the cash flow is coming in. It is a small business being a freelance writer. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's the worst part. <laughs> Probably. Maybe unless it's going well. Maybe it's always the worst part. That's I don't know. the worst part. It is. Those little submitting expenses. I think billing that's is the, the worst, worst part. Exactly. Yeah. Oh. Drumming up business is the worst part. Back in the day when you used to have to go through your phone bill. Right? And, and highlight and it? highlight all the ones that were... <laughs> <laughs> and then Xerox it and send the whole thing. Sneak in a few calls to grandma. <laughs> <laughs> what are you t- 
talking about? That would never have occurred to me. <laughs> it's always very honest. All those lunches, those working lunches. <laughs> but there were so many bills, and it was all paper. Yeah. Wow. The boy, back in the days of expense, I did a piece for Vogue about the Women's Mountain Bike and Tea Society, and I expensed the mountain bike. Oh, my God. I bought my first mountain bike with kill fees, which is a sad commentary. <laughs> I feel like because... On my writing. <laughs> I feel like because I was writing about music for we- local, you know, for weeklies at the time, that I missed that whole expense. You got a whole. lot of free CDs. Oh, I got a buttload of CDs. Yeah. And, I, and what I would sell and free for beer. food There you on. go. Free no beer? free beer. You what about getting into concerts? Shows. You'd get into free. shows. Okay. Yeah. That was a big deal. Say, hey, band, how's We're it not going, feeling man? sympathetic I know. You would hear. in the 90s. You were the king. <laughs> but I would hear about even Chuck Klosterman, who's a contemporary. Like his, oh, they flew us out to like, you know, they weren't, nobody at the stranger in Seattle was flying us anywhere. Do you guys know this? I can't think of his last name. I'm so embarrassed. It's Terry something. He wrote The Accidental Life. He's an editor. The book just came out. It's been excerpted in Lit Hub. Sorry, Terry. No. I can't no, remember your last name. I have a computer. Okay, so look while it up. You're, pretend okay. like I'm not doing this. But So he was an editor at Rolling Stone and various other magazines. And when you read, they're lit in uh, Sports Illustrated. They're literally McDonald. renting. Terry, Terry McDonald. They're renting Apologies, private Terry. jets. I worked like, with him at Rolling Stone. <laughs> what an asshole. Was he also Xeroxing for Coke? Oh, my Coke God, heads? no. Uh-uh. Mm. Well, it, it is a, a fascinating picture. A, there are maybe two women mentioned in the entire book. Right. And neither of them are his wife, the mother of his children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, th- like, women don't exist in the whole memoir. It was such an old boys club. There was so much money. It's crazy. Yeah. Total boys club. It is crazy. And I, I don't want to say it's sad now that that money's all gone, but I will say it would have been kind of fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. When the last chapters are all about me, going to become, oh, yeah, you would, have, you would have liked it, um, going to digital platforms. And it's so boring. It's yeah. so boring when you read those chapters. And I just think like, oh, this is the problem. <clears throat> well, do you, do you find, you know, as, as a mid-level, mid-life writer, do you, is there a sense, and we can all answer this, of being blindsided? by how things have changed. You know, we, we set out to do something, and when we set out to do it, the rules are entirely different than they are now. Or is that, you know, is that whining? Has everyone faced that? You know, I think for me, the bigger surprise has been that my career just hasn't kept going on an uphill trajectory the entire time. Because it did for a long time. I mean, I was sort of like this young star, and then it, mm-hmm. I just kept getting bigger and bigger assignments and then a New York Times bestseller and then after that it was just like you know you expect the movie deal's gonna come yeah. and I was gonna play you in the you movie never, you know, they never spoke to you about a movie for a I, I, I did sell the, the option to a, a an Italian producer who turned it into sort of like a really, really bad soft porn script. I knew you were going to say soft porn. I knew you were going to say that. Skinamax, late night action. Skinamax? (laughs) I didn't know about that till now. teenage boys in the 80s, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, so I think it's really important to be able to, you know, take it all with a bit of equanimity. Like, okay, you're not constantly going up, 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 and that's okay. You know, you have to have times where you're figuring out what you want to do next times where you're playing with different genres or, you know, and it's so important to disengage yourself from the notion that either money or popularity is, uh, you know, is the standard of, of quality and excellence. Mm -hmm. It's not, 
you know, sometimes I'll write something that I spend so much time on and it feels like three people read it. And I, I get often frustrated when I post things on Facebook about, you know, just something. some picture yeah. of like, here I am in Golden Gate Park and I get like... 150 likes, and then I post, like, here's the story I just spent three months researching for San Francisco Magazine. And it was like, yeah, like, hardly anyone. It's like, would you just please read my story? So what you're saying is my career now should just be writing about my dog. Yes. (laughs) If it involves corgis, you're... I'll get a million readers and a million likes. (laughs) Well, at this point, and I don't know if you think in terms of this, but what are your career goals now? How's it going to play out? I don't know. You know, I I I am thinking about my next book, um, but I'm not talking about it. And I just am going to keep doing what I've been doing. I get really excited when I come across a good story. I just last week came across an amazing story, um, which I ended up giving to a, a Latino writer because it's one that I couldn't report myself, but I've been helping him a little bit. And it's just like exciting to find sources and information. I love that stuff. Um, so I need to stumble on a really great story um, myself. So we'll see. It's so fun to watch you talking about this because you really, there's just fire in your eyes yeah. and it's, it's fun, right? <laughs> it drives yeah. Um, well, we're getting short on time here, but I don't want to let you leave without talking about your association with the Grotto, since that's where we are. Definitely. And we were debating back and forth, were you the first female member of the Grotto? No, I wasn't, but I... You were early. I was early. When I came in, there were all guys, but there had been a woman who just couldn't take it, I think. Couldn't take the dance. That's interesting. So I, but then I recruited some other women. How did you get, how did you hook up with them in the first place? Well, so I had gotten divorced and I was like, either I'm going to get a roommate or I need to get an office and either I'm going to keep, have my office at home or I'm going to get a roommate and an office. And I thought, you know, I'm so depressed. It'd be better to go out in the world and have an office. One option is solitude. Yeah, exactly. And was this when they were still in the Victorian? No, we were, they were, actually, they were just opening a new office on Folsom Street. Not the legendary cat hospital. No, before the cat hospital. So I went to a party and I met um, a couple of them and then they invited me to a party and then. And that's how it goes. And that's how it goes. The party never ended. Yeah. And I had finished my first book, so they thought that I was legitimate. So, Rightly so. Um, but the grotto has been really great for me, just having a community of people. I mentioned I never would have written an Italian affair if Ethan hadn't right. said, hey, that's a book. And the idea that you can have someone in the room next door who's – not having sort of the creative fears that you're having or hiding them pretty well is 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 great and or conversely that they are mm-hmm. it means you're not alone yeah so the the grotto has been great it's been great to get out of the house to be among other people um all all of that How it's been it? a little bit of a boys club along the way though i have to say that sure i was in now I was just going to say, you get to do other people's dishes. <laughs> so there's Don't that. Don't get me started on that controversy. <laughs> I am not part of that. Um, now you, however, are a go-to source for stories about the crazy grotto. People walking around in fish costumes, crazy stuff going on. 
But there's not a whole lot of craziness these days. Like how, how there is Larry, where you're just not invited. My, I knew it. I knew it was happening, and I wasn't invited. <laughs> you know, when I mean, it really has to do with with our age, the age of the people who founded it. Yeah. Bef- when everyone was single, the grotto parties were smoking hot, fun parties. I mean, no. I remember wearing a corset. It's like and a love like, boat. It was crazy. We had a marching band. Oh yeah, was it the extra action marching band? Yeah, it was. Anyway, it, we just had we had uh, pretty crazy times. Um, this is the world. Well, <laughs> I'm the start world. But, you know, you, you, we all, we all, and, and by we all, I wasn't here. But I wasn't here either. But I did manage at the same time to also get older. But also, there's way more people here now. There's way more people, which is a it's function a of the economy. Yeah, you I know, mean, we had to, we we successively got dot commed out of different offices. Oh yeah, every time, right? Every I, time. I how are we still here? I, we, I, since I have been part of the grotto, I've seen South Park go from basically a ghost town to this crazy Well, we have 32 offices, and when we moved in, we basically had 32 people in 32 offices. Now we have office shares. We have flex space users. We have emeritus members. We teach classes. I mean, people have been very creative about figuring out how to keep our rent low while, you know, continuing with the space but it changes the dynamic for sure it's got to be a different feel now i mean you walk the halls did you ever think you'd walk the halls of the grotto and not recognize people yeah i never thought that and and that happens last night i was at a party and was talking to a woman who i thought was at the grotto but she's not (laughs) (laughs) but i've just seen her at parties like other parties around town and I just so yeah. I recognized her, so I thought I mean, she was everything out. changes. I feel a little like the grotto grandma. You know, people come to me, they're like, "Where are the scissors?" Oh, where is this? I've said I'm the Ted McGinley of the grotto. I didn't get there until after the move to Los Angeles and Fonzie jumped the shark. Right? Who's Ted McGinley? Ted McGinley is an actor. He oh. was in Revenge of the Nerds. Uh huh. But he's also like, if you look at his Wikipedia page, there's the Ted McGinley effect that he joined all these sitcoms oh, after, after they had already jumped the shark. But I don't like when you say that because. I feel you're creating heart- new memories, new space. I'm psyched. About Look, we the have the Grotto Pod. You we guys are doing pod. this. That's no, I awesome. know it's awesome. But there's definitely, you know, something. The parties maybe aren't. Yeah, as, the parties as are a little wild more as they once calm. were. I for, for me, that's probably. And sometimes best. not present company accepted. Some people will talk about how great it used to be. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wasn't here, so I can't yeah. speak to that. But I, I would have been better had we been here. Of course, I think we would have. I think the that game. I think that happens anytime you sure. you know have people just getting older. Yeah. <laughs> like it was better in the old days. Well, and we live in San Francisco, where everyone says it was better. Right? Before. I know exactly. I mean, and it was. <laughs> people have always been showing up and ruining it for the people. But and now we're in the middle of this. This, you know, we're in the the epicenter of the tech culture with all these obnoxious twenty five year old guys who storm in front of you and are rude and. I mean, I'll tell you what, in 20 years, they're all going to be talking about how great it was back then. And someone they will, and, and someone even older will talk about how rude they were. Came and ruined it. Last night, I passed two guys who were just the epitome of the hipster thing. You know, giant beards, <laughs> two tight shirts. And I thought, oh my God, there they are. They passed me. They were speaking Polish. Polish hipsters. And I was like, in oh San my Francisco. God, it's just, it's, it's, it's worldwide. It's, it's a worldwide phenomenon. It's the, I, you know, the hoodies, the, the hoodie guys are the ones who just sort of bum me. Let me ask you women something as we wrap up here. All right, let's stare at you. Uh, the sense of the young guys now that the look, the sort of standard cool guy look is so unkempt looking. Are you glad you're not a young woman having to deal with that all the time? <laughs> like, here's my choice, a big, gross beard 
and a dirty hoodie and pants that are too short. I think beards are nasty looking. Me too. I don't like it. Yeah. Some. Although I have to say, back in the day, I went out with quite a few unkempt types. I was going to say, I kind of liked unkempt. <laughs> I've always kind of fallen for the artist. Me too. I liked unkempt. Artists don't have to be unkempt. They can be kempt. <laughs> I liked unkempt, but I married the super kempt. Yeah, kempt. pretty kempt. Yeah. Roy is very kempt. Roy is My husband's pretty unkempt. <laughs> he's got that Einstein he's hair. Yeah, mad yeah. professor Mad professor. Yeah, I like yeah. it. I like I it. I think we've come to the end of this show. <laughs> we're not talking about boys anymore? No, no. We're not talking about hipsters, beards, or anything. And also, Fine. the temperature in here has risen to a about 400 degrees it Fahrenheit. It is hot. So we're going to wrap it up. because Laura's here. <laughs> Laura Frazier, <laughs> long-time grotto, original gangsta. Yep. <laughs> Do you have a uh, website, Twitter, Facebook, so they can see your rants? How can people get a hold of you? LauraFraser.com, F-R-A-S-E-R. Like the city in mm-hmm. uh, Canada? Mm-hmm. And I'm Laura Fraser SF on Twitter. She got one of the early handles. Yeah. You know, there's a Laura Fraser. She was on Breaking Bad. And I, she was, she, she she was one of the, like the pharmaceutical rep or something. And she was on Titus. Anyway, she's really hot. I get all this mail on my website that's, that's like, you are so hot. And I'm like, yes, I I am. am. (laughs) And then then they're like, and I loved you in Breaking Bad. I'm like, oh, shoot. But that's the good thing about being old is you have your own name domain. There's a lot of Laura Frasers out there and I've got the domain. There's a Bridget Quinn who's a producer at 30 Rock. She has everything. We're not going to get all the Larry Rosens out there. BQ, how can they get a hold of you? Uh, they can get a hold of me, Larry, at BridgetQuinnAuthor.com or at BeQuinTrust because Bridget Quinn was taken in wow. all its iterations on <laughs> on what? Twitter? Twitter. Instagram. And, and read Broad Strokes because it's stroke. so awesome. Oh, As for me, uh, you can. I don't have a website. I should, but I don't. A lot of things I should. You be could doing do that. that it's I pretty fast. Do. I know. Yeah, you could do that this afternoon. But if you want to follow me on Twitter at <laughs> that Larry Rosen and Instagram at, at that Larry. If you want Rosen. to see pictures of Corgi? I just said someone who listens to my other podcast is it good for the Jews? Follow me on Instagram and apologize. I'm like, no, you're supposed to be doing this. <laughs> like, I feel like I'm stalking you. No, no. Good. Tell your friends. I always is tell it you. good for you? Know that joke. I've heard this line so many times. Got any Jew in you? You want some? <laughs> <laughs> it's a little late for me to use that line. Uh, I've fallen for it. <laughs> There's a shiksa for you. <laughs> but we digress. Speaking of bearded boys. Our producers are. <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Lee Kravitz. That was a joke, too. Um, ben, Beth Weingartner. Lorianne Doyle. Thanks, guys. All right, you guys. Be like Laura Frazier and read, write, and just keep working. And working. Yeah.